And I'm Kyle Thompson. And I'm Ben Tarnoff. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And uh, this t- this week, as you can tell, we're joined by Ben Tarnoff to talk about an article that he wrote for Logic Magazine in um, December of 2019. Um, the article is called From Manchester to Barcelona. Um, and it's a real nice article, as usual, because we don't uh, tend to pick bad stuff for the show. Or at least when we do pick, <laughs> when we do pick bad stuff, we, we don't actually bother recording it or we throw the recordings away. Um, but hey, that doesn't happen very often. Ben, how are you doing? Um, I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Fabulous. Um, really glad to have you here. Um, so uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with Logic, uh, what's, that, what's, that, what's that whole project all about? So Logic is a magazine about technology uh, that comes out three times a year. Each issue has a different theme. Uh, So we've done issues on nature, scale. Uh, The last one that we put out is on security. The next one is on care. And it comes out as a print magazine. Uh, And we're very proud of the the print product, kind of how it's designed and how it feels in your hands. But we also put almost all of our pieces online. So you can find them at logicmag.io. Mm-hmm. It's um, some really great stuff there. I've, I've been subscribed for a while, uh, but I must confess, because of my extreme ADHD, I usually don't get around to reading the entire PDF. Um, but uh, it's, it's um, but like the it's it's a, it's a magazine about technology, but it's all it's a, it's it's political economy as as well, right? Like it's a it's a it, is, is it is it sort of explicitly a Marxist project, or is it sort of nudge wink sort of Marxist, but not we don't we don't <laughs> put it on the cover, you know? Is, what, what's the story there? Or is it? Or is it just Big Ten? Uh, yeah, yeah. I would say it is a Big Ten magazine in the sense that it doesn't have an explicit party line, and our contributors come from a range of political positions all over the broad left. So folks who might identify as liberals, uh, socialists, anarchists. Um, so it's a pretty broad group. I would say our editorial orientation is fairly leftist, you know, fairly rooted in in kind of basic uh, historical materialist concepts. And the attention to political economy that you mentioned is is certainly certainly very intentional. Um, But broadly, I think our desire was to try to create a different kind of conversation about technology, one that was centered on questions of power and labor and ownership, but also one that really elevated the voices of people within the industry, because that's something that we felt was especially lacking in the mainstream tech conversation, that there weren't a lot of voices from tech itself, or I should say from the rank and file, because the executive and investor class, of course, has always uh, found a way to make itself heard in mainstream media, but that the rank and file um, didn't seem to have much of a, a platform of its own. So that, that was part of our intention as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that, 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 that it's right up our alley. I, I, I gotta say, I also do appreciate the design of the, the site because there's, there's no like big fucking, um, hammer and sickle shit on it. So it means you can sneak it into Hacker <laughs> News, you know, and like, uh, you, you poison the well that way, which is quite nice. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't immediately read as a, as a leftist uh, publication. It's just like saying, "Oh, look! Here's a, here's an interesting article about tech stuff." And it's, uh, yeah, you can you can sneak them their uh, sneak their vitamins into their yogurt that way, you know. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, fabulous. So uh, this article from Manchester to Barcelona. Um, what's what's the general pitch here? Uh, what's what's this article about? 
Well, I started writing this piece probably in the summer of 2019. And the the context for it was thinking about the so-called tech clash, this moment, uh, particularly in the United States, where we started to have a different conversation about technology. And I would argue that this really develops sometime after the 2016 election. You know, it's hard to pin down and it's hard to characterize too precisely, but I think we could describe it as a, it's a kind of mood, a more critical mood about the role that tech firms uh, were playing in the lives of, of ordinary people. And what I felt was missing from that mood was an analysis of the industry and analysis of technology that focused on things like political economy, that tried to make the connection to capitalism as a whole, uh, and that really tried to dig a bit deeper into how do these structures really work and how might we transform them in a, a kind of truly radical way. The tech lash is a funny thing to talk about right now in the summer of 2020 because the pandemic has obviously intervened. And I wouldn't say it's ended the tech lash. That's something that a few commentators have speculated on. I don't think that framing is quite accurate, but it has complicated the conversation a little bit because tech has, through the pandemic, managed to expand its power, expand its influence um, in, in such a short period of time that I think the terrain is actually a little bit different than it was when I began writing. But broadly, that was the hope was the TechLash creates this opportunity for us to have a different conversation about technology. Ordinary people are more critical of these firms than they ever have been before. How do we make an intervention that capitalizes on this moment and that channels some of that critical energy towards a deeper conversation that centers on capitalism, ownership, political economy, uh, and more radical solutions to the problems we face. Right, absolutely. And I mean, it, it seems to me that in this situation, as you said, uh, the power of the you know tech sector, uh, whatever that variety of mashed up industries is, um, has certainly increased uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, I also think that there is a kind of remnant of the tech lash that you see in people's perspective on uh, what solutions are to the pandemic. Because like, I think, you know, tracing apps have become very popular, but there's been a lot of controversy about handing too much power in that regard over to tech, right? It's not just, let's just go with the Google solution or the Facebook solution. There's a lot of apprehension about that. Yeah. And there's, there's even been like, um, I mean, some of the, the tracing apps that have launched, even the ones that aren't based on the Google stuff, um, I've, I've kind of like faltered, right? Like that there's a lot of, uh, mo mo like it's like 80% uninstalls or something on, on whatever. It's like people install it and they're like, oh no, fuck, imme immediately back out of it. Which I, I guess before the tech lash, that sort of stuff would have probably been kind of unremarkable. Like it would have been like, oh no, of course it's a good idea to help let Google help us solve the pandemic or whatever. I do feel that like, yeah, people are like even like sort of um, people who aren't especially attuned to the like tech 
political economy discourse are, are much more cagey about that stuff. They're much more aware of the problems. Um, you, you do mention in the article, uh, Ben, the, like the 2013 with the kind of the, the Snowden revelations and uh, that, that stuff. That stuff really, I think, was a, was a real like as you said in the article, a kind of watershed moment for that. So just this like this this sense of creeping dread begins at that moment. And it's like, mm, geez, I don't know about this stuff. Um, and then every every year since, it just adds more and more to the pile of uh, of reasons to be apprehensive about this uh, this whole tech thing. Absolutely, and yeah, as you point out, there is a prehistory to the tech lash, and Snowden is an important point in that history. Um, probably the most important point before the 2016 election. So it's it's never as easy as, you know, an ideology kind of dies on a particular day and the next day there's something brand new. It's always this process of of dissolution and, and there are also always survivals. I mean, it would be easy to celebrate the death of kind of the techno-utopianism of the 1990s. I'd certainly like to be able to. And it's and the power of that ideology, I think, has been greatly diminished by the developments of recent years. But even uh, an ideology like that, which I think has has been should have been rendered so entirely obsolete by by events, survivals persist. So yeah, it's always a somewhat complicated picture. Mm-hmm. I kind of suspect that this stuff it's it persists for the absence of an, of alternatives in a in a sense. You know, it's like. Um, well, you know, if we shut down Google, like the entire fucking economy will come to a, a collapse because they they got all the spreadsheets, you know. Um, uh, or like, you know, it's like if you're if you're stuck at home now and like you're the only way to be in touch with any of like your previous support groups is through Zoom or whatever. It's like, well, fuck it. I guess we're gonna have to use Zoom. Um, there there isn't there aren't that many sort of alternatives to it, uh, which is very unfortunate. Um, yeah, well, I, I think this is a good point to sort of segue into this discussion of network power that you have in this in this uh, article, because, um, you know, Shane, you were just mentioning some of the ways in which the tech giants are able to use their network power to kind of trap people in uh, dependence. Um, but Ben, can you talk a little bit how uh, you sort of uh, develop uh, sort of Marx and Engels's ideas about capitalism in a in a similar network direction? Yeah. So as I mentioned, the purpose of this piece is to interrogate the relationship between the constellation of digital technologies that we call tech, you know, the internet most centrally, but a number of others on the one hand, and capitalism on the other. And the the basic argument that I advance is that tech intensifies a core contradiction of capitalism, which is the contradiction between wealth being socially produced and privately owned. The social production of wealth is a concept that that Marxists will be familiar with, but for folks who haven't encountered that concept before, the basic idea is that capitalism brings workers into denser and more interconnected forms of labor. The factory is, I think, a very easy illustration of this idea. Whereas formerly, perhaps you were a subsistence farmer, you know, farming on a small family plot to, to feed um, your immediate family, or let's say you were an artisan that worked on your own or in a small workshop, suddenly you're in 
the factory of industrial Manchester, say of the 19th century, in which hundreds or thousands of workers are arranged in complex combinations and complex divisions of labor around machinery, increasingly sophisticated machinery. Engels in particular has a wonderful line in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, where he talks about the modern factory and how because of the complexity and the interconnectedness and the social nature of the production processes of the factory, no single worker can point to a finished product and say, that's my work. I made that because many, many hands had to contribute much, many, much labor power, we could say in a more Marxist idiom, had to contribute to the production of the commodities that are coming out of the factory. But the contradiction comes into play when we think about, well, who owns the factory, right? So the capitalist still owns the factory. Wealth is still owned on the private model, which is an older model, of course, because if I'm a subsistence farmer and I own my little plot of land, of course, I own the food that I'm producing. But in this case, production has been transformed. So production is social in the factory, but ownership has not in the sense that ownership is still private. So the wealth that is being produced is being produced in a network form, but it's still flowing to a series of islands. It's still flowing to a, a series of private owners, particularly in this earlier history of capitalism, the kind of individual private capitalist before the rise of the modern corporation and ownership becomes a, a bit more complicated. So to bring it back to what we call tech, the argument is that tech makes the production of wealth even more collective than it was before, that it makes it possible to weave together the contributions of hundreds, thousands, millions of people into extraordinary, vast sums of wealth that then accrue to fewer and fewer hands. You could think of this as a metaphor of a funnel, right? All of the inputs to wealth creation going in the top and the output of the wealth coming out of the narrow end at the bottom. And that tech essentially broadens the mouth of the funnel while narrowing the bottom. And I go into some specifics in the piece of, well, how precisely does tech do that? And in part, we actually have to talk about some specific technologies to explain, uh, to give an account of that phenomenon, such as machine learning. And we can go into that if, if you'd like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it would be uh, worth talking about how that kind of aggravates this, this existing pattern. So the example that I explore in my piece is Facebook. Facebook is always a good one to talk about because it's always on everyone's minds. It's always uh, uh, in one controversy or another, and, and a lot of people use it. So Facebook has uh, a lot of money, <laughs> because as we all know, it's it's uh, valued a, a, an enormous sum. Um, you know, it, it earns a lot of money. It has a very very uh, profitable 
business, you know, just insane margins. It also employs about 40,000 full-time employees. So relative to the amount of money that Facebook generates, it, it, it uh, employs very few people. And this number, of course, does not include the number of contractors that Facebook has working for them. And that's an important note to make because tech firms generally have armies of contractors who tend to be paid much less. So we should always keep that in mind when thinking about their official numbers. But even so, frankly, there aren't that many people working for Facebook relative to how much money it makes. So we could ask ourselves, well, how is that possible? What, what is the mechanism that makes that kind of leverage possible? So what I try to do is think about, well, what are the various kinds of workers? What are the various kinds of inputs um, that are being made to uh, that insane wealth creation. So we could start with the various people who do work for Facebook, what either directly employed by Facebook, say a software engineer who works at Facebook's headquarters, a product designer, or let's say a subcontracted worker who also works at Facebook's headquarters, but does the kind of essential uh, blue collar work uh, that those types of campuses really need in order to function, such as food service work, security guards, shuttle bus drivers, and so on. You could also think about roles like content moderators, which as we know is an absolutely critical job. Without it, Facebook would be completely unusable. These folks are also contractors and tend to have very difficult, even traumatic working conditions and are, are paid uh, less than full-time employees. Moving outwards and thinking of this maybe as a series of concentric circles, we could also think about the uh, many people who over the years have built the various technologies that a company like Facebook needs to exist, right? The internet protocols, which were first developed in the 1970s, the digital computer, uh, the modern smartphone, which like many of these things, all comes out of uh, US government research. Or bringing us closer to the present, various popular software libraries that programmers at Facebook and elsewhere um, use to, to build modern software. These libraries you know, tend to be open source. So we can think about that as another concentric circle. Moving further out, we get to a layer that I think is what makes tech most distinctive, which is that tech is able to, to harvest value from a set of activities that don't look like traditional labor. Nobody is paid for them. They don't really look like work, what we think of work is. And in the case of Facebook, this is the activity of users on the platform, but also around the internet. Uh, anything else that leaves a digital trace because Facebook is engaged not only in monitoring how its users use the platform, but how its users and indeed even how non-users uh, you know, use the internet more generally because it, as much data as it can gather about you, uh, the better for it to monetize in the form of advertising. So the question of what is that kind of activity that you know, obviously generates wealth for Facebook, but doesn't look like work. This is a kind of contested theoretical question. 
And there are some scholars who say, oh, no, that is labor. There are some scholars who say that isn't labor. I don't take a strong position on this question, but I draw attention to it because that, I would argue, it points to one of the distinctive elements of how tech is able to make the production of wealth more collective than ever before, because it's able to extend that wealth production into spaces that are actually not really spaces of labor, they're spaces of life. There are spaces that we would formerly have associated with private life. Yeah, definitely, right? Like, um, I think, you know, there's, in, in your account there, there's a couple of words that jump out at me, right? Like the harvesting and leverage and extension and all this sort of thing, right? Like that um, in this kind of like famously low profitability environment, like the, the rate of profit is just dropping and dropping. Um, the tech industry, I think, is able to sustain itself by being a kind of weird, like squirrel spider that just goes around gathering stuff up and 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 scuttling it away. Um, and the, the technology stuff is often enabling like a cheaper harvesting of these kinds of resources, right? That like um, I don't know. Imagine like you had a, a field and it's like, oh, there's there's a bunch of like there's a bunch of gold in this field, but it's in like micro particles and stuff, and it's like just. You'd give up because it's too it's too difficult to get at the little pieces of gold. Um, whereas this tech thing is much better at like wedging itself into these tiny spaces and extracting just that little smidgen of value um, through this kind of automated process, right? Um, and I think that yeah, it's it, it's a very interesting question, right? Like, is this stuff like productive value? Is it like commodity value and stuff? And is it probably not? But it's like. It's a lever. It's like the best lever you could ever hope for that would like get you leverage into like just wedging a tiny little particle of gold out of out of the soil or something like that. Like maybe for Facebook, an example that comes to mind with the open source stuff is like um, like Facebook and Google and stuff. They put all this energy into like, oh, these open source libraries, you have like React, you have Kubernetes, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, the tech folks are often very impressed with that. It's like, oh, look, they're giving away all this all this all this really useful stuff. And it's like, oh, aren't they, aren't these, these great, like, uh, philanthropists basically. And it's like, no, what, what they're doing is by getting every, every fucking JavaScript developer to use react, they're cheapening their own hiring process. It means that everyone out there already knows the technology they use internally. So it's just easy as hell to hoover up junior hires. Um, and that's, that, that, that's not commodity value, but it's extremely valuable for the process of, um, wedging yourself into you know the process of like advertising and uh you know just like harvesting value off of the side of the the exchange and distribution process and it's just it just so happens that tech is better at that than any other industry has ever been like the newspapers were never good at that sort of stuff but these these tech fuckers they're uh, they're excellent at it mm -hmm. to pick up briefly on what you said about open source you know for years there was uh, a certain argument that was being made about how open source uh, had all this revolutionary potential because it was decommodifying the work of software development. This is obviously you know, one of the uh, important ideas at, at the beginning of the free software movement that kind of launches open source in its current form. And it's important to, to note that capitalists also have their own commons. You know, there's, a, there's an idea of a capitalist commons where it's often, frankly, just more efficient to have some type of common infrastructure that is maintained collectively, you know, subsidized in this case, as you know, I mean, uh, open source libraries are uh, tend to be 
maintained and, and written by folks who are paid to do so at, at these various companies. Um, so there, there's a kind of collective uh, interest in maintaining certain common infrastructures because it kind of reduces everyone's costs. I mean, this is why you know the the Chamber of Commerce and in various kind of elements of big capital in the United States have long wanted various infrastructure improvements. You know, capital likes good highways because it's not particularly efficient for each individual capitalist to pay to pave the highway that their trucks need to move product from one place to another. So it's a certain line of argument that I think, frankly, a lot of people have, have become much more um, sophisticated about, but uh, that we should always be vigilant vigilant about. Right. I mean, uh, sort of prior to open source, we can see the development of public science after uh, the Second World War as a precursor to that, where it's very much a commons uh, to the benefit of capitalism. Um, But you can look at very literal uh, capitalist commons as well, uh, such as like, you know, the best Western chain. That's like a that's an owner cooperative, um, and uh, it, it's not for the workers. It's it's to sort of like lower those mutual costs of marketing and and design and all that kind of stuff to better exploit workers. Um, so this this stuff can be quite uh, persistent uh, persistent in various areas where it's going to improve profitability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a really interesting section then that follows on from that. It's uh, titled The Difference Engine, where we, we go from this um, this thing like capitalism connects and it hyper-connects and everything's fucking globbed together in this massive web of, uh, of, of mutual um, entanglement. Um, but that, that capitalism is also this engine for making difference um, and for differentiating things and for grading things. Uh, so, Ben, can you talk us through a little bit of this section? There's some really, really interesting ideas here that are... Um, uh, really, really compelling. So the two thinkers that I'm drawing on most directly in this section are are Cedric Robinson and Oscar Gandy. And I think it probably makes sense to start with Robinson, to kind of start with the broader frame before we get to the tech-specific frame. And the broader frame, I think, is also one with great relevance for our particular political moment with the wave of protests and rebellions Uh, after George Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police, a a lot of folks are thinking about what is the relationship between race and capital. This is obviously an old and and, uh, very contested set of questions on the left, but but one that I think is receiving renewed attention given uh, the current events. Robinson, in a book called Black Marxism, lays out an interpretation of the history of European capitalism in which racial thinking plays a very important role in how capitalism develops and how capitalism proliferates through colonial and imperial ventures around the world. And his argument more specifically is that in the Middle Ages, as European populations engaged in a series of internal colonization efforts, that they developed certain ideas about race in order to justify relations of domination that were emerging 
between different European communities. I think one of the cases that he cites is the Slavs, who were so frequently enslaved in this period uh, that you know the the actual root of of the word slave in English, French, and other European languages comes from you know is connected to the word for Slav. So, in other words, racial thinking suffuses European societies before capitalism emerges. And when capitalism does emerge and brings its own even more intense relations of domination and exploitation and inequality, these racial ideas are extended, adapted, and deepened in order to justify these new inequalities, these new relations of exploitation and domination that capitalism is generating, particularly as these European nations push out into the Americas, to Asia and Africa, and embark on this project of colonization and imperialism. So to my mind, Robinson frames it in a very elegant way and in a very useful way about how racial thinking and racism has always played an integral role in capitalism. And for me, that was very generative because when I came to think about technology, I found a real resonance between the type of difference-making dynamic that he's describing, where capitalism is constantly differentiating different populations in order to justify various kinds of domination, and how technology, particularly in its modern iteration, what we've been discussing, works. And, and for that, I really turn to the work of Oscar Gandhi, wonderful media scholar, who in 1993 published a book called The Panoptic Sort. And this is a remarkable book, remarkable in its prescience, because this is, of course, before the internet has gone mainstream. This is before the privatization of the internet. Computers and computerization, certainly widespread in the early 90s, but the kind of current model of computerization had not consolidated. And what Gandhi is looking at, and looking at you know very, very precisely, it's a very um, kind of closely researched, very kind of densely detailed book, is how various actors are compiling vast amounts of information about individuals in order to segment and sort them into different groups. So one obvious example of this might be uh, data brokers. You know, folks who are purchasing your, uh, you know, credit rating, your credit card purchases, um, any kind of purchases. I mean, at this point, their tools have become vastly more sophisticated in terms of the data that they're purchasing. But essentially, developing detailed files about individuals in order to sort them, segment them, and rank them. And this was Gandhi's point: rank them by their economic value and, and their political value, depending on the institution who is doing this work. So Gandhi described the panoptic sort as a difference machine, and as a difference machine that guides the global capitalist system. And I think that analysis is really useful for understanding what's happening 
today, where the tools for that type of differentiation that, that Gandhi identified in the early 90s have become vastly more sophisticated, right? Because there's infinitely more data. Those data brokers are now purchasing your cell phone location data. I mean, you name it. Everything we do essentially leaves a digital trace, and those traces are being purchased and analyzed by a variety of state and corporate actors. Mm-hmm. I, I I absolutely loved this kind of yeah, the, the the closing of this section right that like pointing out that this this tech big data AI machine learning stuff is is the part of the labor the ide- ideological labor that's needed to sustain the system right because like it's if we think of capitalism as an auto poetic system it's like a system that produces itself. Um, Every organism has like a cost of reproduction for itself, right? Like, and it has to has to squirrel that kind of stuff away. Um, and you know, the amount of work that capitalists and like bourgeois society puts into maintaining the system is fucking extraordinary. Like, they really have to push uphill against the 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 the, the potential for collapse, right? But what what tech does and what machine learning does specifically is it cheapens this process of reproduction. It makes it easier for the system to sustain itself by just cheapening all that that uh, necessary labor it needs to do to keep itself alive, um, which reminds me a lot of the stuff that we read previously with with Bob. What the fuck was it? The Capitalocene stuff, right? Like the, the 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 four cheaps, right? Like cheap energy, cheap labor, and so on, right? Like and. I think then, like, as Mackenzie Wark has this thing about, like, oh, that there's a fifth cheap, it's, like, cheap information. And I think it's it's probably not cheap information that tech is doing. It's cheap information processing and cheap differentiation of information is is, is the real fifth cheap, um, probably. Uh, well, I would say that a lot of that sort of third-ring information collection that... Uh, Ben, you were talking about uh, is cheap information, right? That is, you know, to use a Cernichek's formulation, is the raw material that tech works up. Um, but the service that tech provides is collecting and disseminating that information in useful ways to the system, right? Like, uh, you know, it is true that when we just sort of blithely uh, you know, click through EULAs and um, agree to give away uh, all of our personal information to these large corporations. That's pretty cheap for them. Uh, but, uh, you know, they then make that sort of understandable information for others to use. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is similar. To, it sort of ties in with that kind of question of like is is this tech work really commodity value production or whatever and may, maybe it isn't right like maybe it's not commodity value in itself but it cheapens the process of enabling commodity production to happen uh, so it's a it's a worthwhile investment on the part of the capitalists to uh stick a couple of hundred billion or whatever into this industry so that it like just keeps the show going and makes it cheaper to keep the show going in the face of a ever declining rate of real profit and so on you know it's a increasingly desperate sort of moves um to keep the show afloat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think you know what you're what you're pointing to is an important element to keep in mind for this context, which is the stagnation of advanced capitalist economies and how that's also really the backdrop for the insane profitability of of tech. You know, tech is really the last sector where these kind of super profits can be made. 
and it, and it's no exaggeration to say that tech firms, you know, they they certainly hold up the U.S. stock market. Um, they more broadly hold up the U.S. economy, and for that reason, I think ha- also have come to perform a important ideological function, which is in somewhat in tension with the tech clash dynamics that we discussed earlier, which is that tech is seen to be the kind of last refuge of the American dream. And I think that's part of why, obviously, that persists and these things are complicated. And that, uh, but I think that's part of why the, the tech clash has been such an uphill battle in many ways. I mean, that that someone like Zuckerberg, who is uh, so clearly unlikable, um, there's there was so much emotional investment in in trying to make him likable. I mean, that, that America, and maybe more specifically, the American ruling class needs to find these figures appealing uh, because after them, there's nothing left. I mean, if you can't sell the idea of turning Detroit into a tech incubation hub, you know, if, if that dream dies, then nothing replaces it. Then you're you're actually just kind of faced with the reality of decades of capitalist stagnation, uh, and that's a, a scary prospect. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I guess it must have been in 2009-2010, somewhere thereabouts. Uh, Thomas Friedman in the in the New York Times had an article, which was pretty much stating exactly your point there, Ben. That. Like he was saying, you know, oh, I'm disillusioned with the finance sector, but, you know, uh, the tech sector, that's where innovation is happening. And that's where the American dream is still alive. Uh, and I think that that message did really carry uh, up until 2013 with, uh, you know, Snowden and then uh, following that, the 2016 election. So, you know, that that was a very powerful message. I mean, I remember in Canada, right, like, you know, they were sort of talking about turning the entire downtown of uh, Toronto over to Google, <laughs> just yeah. on sort of this this faith that like, just you know, give it to them. <laughs> yeah, like pretty much. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, uh, yeah, you just like design everything, you know, like it, just assume dictatorial power over the, the core of the city uh, because, you, you know, best and you're you're producing the, the American dream. Jeez, I remember that fucking time, right? And I felt like I was on fucking crazy pills trying to explain to people, like in, in Edinburgh, just ordinary sort of schlub techies like myself, right? Like not, not even Silicon Valley people, but trying to explain to them why, why that was a ghastly and fucking terrible sort of uh, development, right? And that's like, I think all this sort of stuff of it being the, the last gasp of capitalism helps to explain, for me, why it is that I've gotten the impression that so many just ordinary programmers and tech folk kind of default to like a watered down landianism like this is kind of like uh affirmation of of the worst aspects of this fucking um really disgusting industry and and a disgusting dynamic but they actually affirm it it's like no totally you should totally just sell a city to google or not even sell it to them just give it to them they're wonderful you know just like let the fucking ai monstrosities run run loose and it's, i think it really is because if you if you stop believing in that, you have to then stare into just the gaping abyss that is uh, the likely end of the fucking world. You know, like just the the collapse of capitalism, because um, it, it it's 
it's kind of the last stop, right? Like there's uh, like as as Friedman was getting at, there's 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 kind of nothing else um, on the horizon. There's there doesn't seem to be any rejuvenation of the project uh, evident. So it's like you got you got to believe this horrible shit or else nothing, right? Like it's the the threat of uh, nihilism, right? Yeah, and I mean this was sort of dramatized a lot when. Zuck was going around America on these like PR tours, right? He'd be like going to the Rust Belt and it was kind of like, you know, someone descending from the promised land uh, to 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 speak to the benighted, uh, you know, uh, masses of left behind uh, people uh, from an old age. Which you would think would be impressive, but then the guy is just like a fucking scarecrow and it's like. Jesus, this this just does it, it just isn't that impressive at all. Like you know, but but you have to you have to pretend the emperor still has clothes because otherwise it's like Jesus, I'm gonna have to really look into the abyss if I if I stop believing that. You know. Yeah, I had exactly one friend uh, who was a uh, Zuck fan, like a legitimate Zuckerberg fan who would like retweet Zuckerberg oh, no. posts from his like PR machine. <laughs> Uh, but uh, <laughs> even even she has given up on okay. the, the Zuckerberg dream. Uh, yeah, I think the one note that I would add to the conversation about tech and stagnation is that it, it's not really the end of capitalism. I don't think. I mean, it's also that's also something that we always have to be a bit careful about pronouncing <laughs> because we've been here before and uh, we're often kind of say, oh, well, nevertheless, you know, capital finds a way. And I, I actually have no doubt that it will find another way. But I think what we're talking about is not so much the viability of the capitalist system as such, so much as the validity of its promises or, or its very capacity to generate broad-based prosperity. And arguably, it has only really been able to generate broad-based prosperity in very specific historical circumstances when a number of conditions obtained, uh, such as relatively high levels of uh, economic growth and productivity growth, as well as a kind of basic social democratic settlement that funneled enough of that wealth into uh, you know, more egalitarian distributions. Um, so obviously there were you know, a 30 year period in which the United States and a handful of, of Western nations enjoyed something like a, you know, a kind of a, a more broad-based prosperity. There are obviously many exclusions from that, but it was certainly a more egalitarian arrangement than, than the one that preceded it or the one that followed it. In many ways, what we've seen, and I think this is something that someone like Piketty has been saying for a while, is a kind of return to form. I mean, that what we're seeing is not so much an exception, but a little bit more of what the, the typical reality of capitalist societies are, which is, in fact, uh, a much sharper degree of inequality. So I think tech is perfectly consistent with with capitalism um, continuing. You know, I think that you know capital can uh, pursue its imperatives quite well in a kind of techified economy. I think what it can't do is you know, bring broad-based prosperity to the Rust Belt. And this is the, these are the kind of promises that, that come out of something like the Zuckerberg listening tour um, or various kind of attempts of VCs to kind of parachute into different communities and, and generate these, these entrepreneurship um, 
labs. Um, and I think so, I, I guess that distinction to me is an important one to make, which is it's less about the viability of capital as a system and more about whether capital can actually deliver on what its apologists have long claimed to be its its greatest virtue, which is the ability to generate broad-based prosperity. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that seems to be completely gone, right? Like it's um yeah, there's 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 no buy-off anymore <laughs> for, for for I think for for anyone really, um, except for the, the most narrow segment of um, of the population. When we're talking about like, you know, people gazing into the abyss, if they look away from the Silicon Valley dream, uh, you know, it's the horror of having to switch from seeing capitalism as a positive sum game to seeing capitalism as a zero sum game, right? Where they're extremely disadvantaged that where like, they're basically just prey to the predators. Um, and, you know, short of like, you know, very organized efforts of class war from below, uh, that means like ever diminishing, uh, degrees of prosperity for the working class. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that's a horrific, uh, prospect to contemplate. Uh, but it is the one we need to contemplate because it's the reality that we're living in. Uh, and, you know, since this pandemic crisis has begun, uh, that's become all the more obvious. Yeah. So I guess um, on, on that topic, right, of the, the pandemic crisis, like, um, so Ben, like, is there anything you'd, you'd add to the essay uh, if you were writing it again today um, or with all this kind of stuff in hindsight or, or just any, I don't know, speculations about, about the moment that we're in? Well, I think as we discussed a bit earlier, the, the role of the pandemic in consolidating the power of tech firms, I, I think, is an important piece to note. You know, and there are many ways in which this is manifested. Just to cite a few, uh, e-commerce has boomed with more people staying at home. So companies like Amazon and Instacart um, have added hundreds of thousands of new workers. Um, you know, ISPs and and cloud providers have also seen surging demand because as more people have, have stayed home, um, they've been using the internet more. Um, so that's that's another way it's manifest. You know, a, a final uh, fairly direct and perhaps most depressing way that it's manifest is surveillance. And we've seen this not just in the United States, of course, but all over the world of how various digital technologies, um, you know, mobile phone location data, for one, is used uh, in order to track people and, and try to understand how infection travels, um, try to enforce uh, social st- distancing measures and things like that. And, and of course, these surveillance programs can be implemented for that purpose, but then the data that is harvested from them can be used for any number of things. There's a company in the United States right now that is marketing uh, these Bluetooth wristbands that workers would wear around the factory or the office, uh, which would, you know, start beeping if they get too close to another worker. But you can imagine this type of data in the hands of management and how useful that would be for them to um, implement new managerial techniques, um, engage in in union busting and, and trying to disrupt collective action and so on. And of course, another major front of surveillance in the United States has been 
these protests, you know, these rebellions in the wake of George Floyd's murder, uh, where the U.S. national security state and local police departments have mobilized a number of technologies in order to uh, surveil protesters. So I think that context is quite important. But I think on a more hopeful note, uh, the rebellions has have also given us, I think, a real new sense of political possibility uh, and has opened, I think, a new field of struggle that that is genuinely exciting, genuinely inspiring. And I think that energy will probably continue to flow to many places. It's it's a kind of situation where one uh, should never try to make any predictions about what will happen next because it's a very fast moving and complicated situation. Um, but I think it's it's a level of social mobilization, a level of working class self-activity and popular initiative that has not been seen in this country for a long time. And it's a real source of hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was reading, uh, fuck, I don't know, some article uh, the other day, but like it, it, it had this line that like, oh, that the, the, in, the American proletariat has finally arrived and entered history. And I, I kind of do, I, I get that impression, you know, that like, this is, this is an activation of a, a force that didn't entirely exist in the U.S. prior to this, um, like a, a fully dispossessed, um, fully immiserated proletariat that doesn't have the 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 old buy-offs, right? The the, the 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 huge amount of land and shit that you could just hand out to people to keep them keep them loyal, or the uh, the sort of mid-century buy-off. Um, and that, yeah, it, it, I I I wonder, right? That like it, I think that the, these these rebellions have kind of highlighted a lot of the fragility of the system and the sort of weakness i mean the the coronavirus crisis has also done this right like highlighting just how fragile this thing is and i'm i'm optimistic right that like it it could be that um the state and its kind of forces are not as powerful as they think they are or that they're they're more easily worn down because i mean you, you could really see that with the cops right that like after a couple of weeks of 12-hour shifts they were starting to look really fucking tired and they they couldn't do the the World War One trick or the World War Two trick of just pumping them full of amphetamines to keep them fighting for two weeks on a half day's rations, you know. Um, and you, you, I don't know. It's it seems there's there's grounds for optimism, but it's it's also simultaneously a very nightmarish and scary fucking world that we live in. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, I I would definitely say that uh, it, at least in my opinion, uh, all all bets are off. We don't really know what's going to happen in the next year i i don't i don't think it's inconceivable uh that within the next 10 years 20 years we could see the end of capitalism because i don't know the next crisis could be very very bad uh and it could lead to alternatives that are not capitalist alternatives um i think we need to maintain our sense of agency in the moment when the opportunity strikes uh but um you know, just on that point, it is encouraging that um, regarding surveillance, that's sort of been one area out of the three that you mentioned, uh, Ben, where um, pushback has been somewhat successful as of late, whereas that was kind of unheard of prior to these uh, rebellions. Um, you know, there, there, there seems to be some degree of retreat over... Uh, facial recognition and you have uh workers sort of 
refusing to work on it, on researching it anymore. Uh, there seems to be some motion there. Right? Can you speak a bit to that? Yeah, I, I agree. That has been a very encouraging development. A number of local campaigns in various U.S. cities have won bans against the use of facial recognition by public agencies, most prominently, of course, the local police. Uh, and the list of cities is growing. Boston um, just, just banned it thanks to a lot of work by the ACLU. Uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, San Francisco, Oakland, California, and others have, have already banded. And in Portland, Oregon, they're pursuing not just a public ban, but a private ban, which, as you can imagine, is a bit more complicated, um, but but also, I think, more ambitious and, and where we need to go next. Because if we tell the government that they can't use it, the private sector will obviously um, use it without restriction. Um, and when we think about the extensive role that the private sector plays in the repressive state apparatus in the United States, um, you can easily see how um, how local governments will will essentially circumvent public bans by outsourcing um, certain uh, needs to the private sector. But yeah, it's super it's it, it's super encouraging. I think the conversation about surveillance has really shifted in a lot of these places. And and this is, you know, obviously has to be capitalized on by a lot of hard organizing work by these organizations. The other development you mentioned, which I think is worth calling attention to, has been collective actions by workers within tech firms against certain contracts, certain products. Uh, and that has also been really encouraging. Um, workers within Amazon have demanded that Amazon st stop selling facial recognition to law enforcement. And you know we've seen actually a number of these companies announce uh, moratoria on facial recognition. Amazon announced that they would pause selling their facial recognition service to law enforcement for a year. And I, I think these are obviously inadequate moves and we should be very suspicious of them, but they do in part reflect the pressure that workers are bringing to bear on management inside of these companies. I get the impression that workers are seeing these results and, and getting the, the taste of blood, basically, that like, oh, look, this shit works, keep fucking pushing, you know? Um, or even like, you know, when, uh, what was it, the, the guy, the New York guy, Governor Cuomo or whatever, did the whole thing of like, oh yeah, well, well we're going to, the, here's these concessions now. Please stop rioting. It's like no, <laughs> clearly, clearly the rioting works. Like let's keep pushing. Um, you know that 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 that's, that stuff is kind of seemingly more close to the surface than it's ever been. Right, like that that kind of consciousness of like, oh no, well if we if we push them, their backs are up against the fucking wall. Like we can we can we can take them. You know, um, we can just we can down tools. We can refuse to work. We can just put pressure on this stuff. And and again, in this context of a of an extremely fragile economy and like a you know a, a rate of growth that is approaching or at zero. Uh, oh, and also like an entire like world economy that's basically been shut down. Um, the bosses don't seem to be on a extremely strong footing at this point. Um, so I don't know. There's, there's grounds for optimism there. It's very hard to know where it will go, but uh, there's encouraging signs, I think. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's probably a good note to end off on. Uh, ben, do you have any, any closing remarks? Um, let me see. I don't think so. I feel like we covered a good deal. I'm not sure I have any um, 
anything in particular that I wanted to add. Cool. No, I don't think so. I'm looking forward to a year from now when my uh, like even marginal optimism will be have been dashed against the fucking rocks again. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. All it'll take is a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> m- minutes. Like by the time this fucking call is over, something will have happened. You know. Um, <laughs> God damn. You know. It, it, like it, oh, this this year has gone on for a decade. You know. It's like just uh, that that real sense of acceleration, just like compression. The the time horizons keep collapsing in on each other. Um, totally. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we're, we're like we're like small, speedy animals that live their very short lives in a very extended sense of time. Absolutely <laughs> right. Like little mayflies or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess uh, guests get the last word on the show. So, is there anything you'd like to plug, Ben? Um, any place people can find you online, etc. Yeah, if folks are interested in reading my writing. They can check out bentarnoff.com. And I'd also encourage them to check out Logic, which is at logicmag.io. Yep, it's a it's a solid, very good magazine. Um, well worth subscribing to. Um, yeah, uh, you can find us on the internet at G, uh, what the fuck I don't know. Uh, GeneralInstructUnit.net. Uh, we're on Twitter, GIUnitPod. <laughs> this this fucking readout gets worse every time. Um, we also have a Patreon uh, for the listeners. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, give us a couple of bucks a month. You can get on the community Discord and support the show. It is it is very much appreciated. Uh, keeps our heads above water in these very uncertain times. And, uh, and you know, the, the community, dis- community Discord, really nice place to hang out with folks who like to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, we have the Stafford Beer uh, Brain of the Firm reading group going on there, uh, which... Uh, is probably as of the time of publication uh, into its kind of final stretch. Uh, but, you know, if you're interested in what Beer had to say about Revolution, uh, that's kind of where you're going to get it at the end of the book. So Yeah, definitely. It's um, yeah. And we're going to clean up all the recordings and publish them soon. I need, I need to get my shit together on that. Um, but it's it, 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 there will be an archive of all the previous uh, sessions. Um, it's been a very interesting read. You know, it's been, it's been, it's been very interesting to comb over that book um, in, in, in detail, because uh, there's, there's a lot in there, um, and a lot more than you get on even your, like, I think it's my fourth read by now. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's good stuff. Oh, also, we, we, have, um, we have a new project uh, as well, a Viable Systems Research Unit. If you go to vsru.org, um, we're, we're doing writing now. You know, we've got a bit of a cloud of collaborators around us. We're hoping to get, uh, get out of the audio space and into the, the written space, uh, much, like, much like logic. Um, so uh, there's some good stuff on there. Uh, we've, we have recently published, a, like a, I guess it's a pamphlet, I guess, about, about organizing, uh, which is up there. Yes, uh, tools for viable organizing. Uh, so I wrote a short pamphlet uh, slash uh, website or web page um, essay, which is just kind of distilling down some of the insights that we've uh, gained in uh, the brain of the firm reading group uh, and applying those uh, in a kind of like, you know, very readable format uh whereas you know beer can be somewhat elliptical and kind of like recursive and stuff i tried to write something that was very straightforward uh so if you're looking for a uh very short intro uh to the vsm uh then please uh check that out Mm mm-hmm 
Yep. Um, which reminds me, I need to put the PDFs for that thing on the website as well. I'll do that tomorrow. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's at vsru.org. Um, check it out. Uh, yeah, I guess, like, thanks, listeners. It's always appreciated. We're really thrilled to have people come along with us on this um, these adventures. And thanks, Ben, for coming along with us. It has been wonderful. Um, and, you know, you can, any any suggestion at all for an, an episode you'd like to do to come on the show again, we're, we're always open to any kind of suggestion. We'd love to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, I guess that's it. We'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye.